You know, you can get to know a lot of, about people by asking them um, their favorite author. Like, what kind of books do you like to read? Um, or what movies do you like to watch? There we go. I had a young lady one time, and we were in a, uh, a car, we were driving. Um, I was with a n number of other people as well. And so I asked her, I said, so what's your favorite movie? And what she, her answer stunned me. She said, my favorite movie of all time is Pulp Fiction. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a dark Quentin Tarantino movie. That would never be the top of list of people that I know. But hey, no judgment here. Um, some people like romantic comedies, and other people like horror shows, not me so much. Um, others, action, adventure, whodunits, and I'm honestly, when it comes to movie watching and reading, I'm fairly eclectic. Um, I like a number of different things, not so much horror. Um, but there was a time in which I really loved, like, vengeance movies, like justice movies. Like, back in the 80s, um, I loved the Death Wish movies with you know, Charles Bronson, you know? I think there were five movies in all, and I'm not endorsing these movies, by the way. This is the 80s, this is a different time and a different place. But man, bad guys doing bad stuff to, to good people, and there's everything in me is just rooting for Bronson to just take them out, you know? You just feel that passion for vengeance and justice, but that wasn't anything compared to the Dirty Harry movies. I love those two back then, you know? And who doesn't like Clint Eastwood? And if you don't like him, don't tell me, because I just, I love his acting. And, uh, you know, calm, cool, collected, a man's man. And so many of his lines are, are immortalized, right? You gotta ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? <laughs> well, do ya? And what's the next word? See, you guys have seen it too. <laughs> Can't judge me now. That's interesting, what, what gravitated, or should, what, what, what attracted me to those particular movies back in the day was just this sense of uh, pleasure that came with justice. Like when the bad guy goes down, you're like, yeah. There was a feeling of, this is right. Um, I felt it, and I think that's because in each of us is a sense and a desire for justice. Now, it may have been vengeance, not justice, and those are not the same thing, but it sure felt the same in here. But if you look around you, you realize that every single human being has a desire for justice. When somebody does something wrong, you want them to pay, right? I'm just, most of us were around when we received word that SEAL Team 6 had taken out Osama bin Laden. And what were people doing? They were celebrating. They were applauding. Why? Because there was a sense in which Justice was done. Now, maybe it was just a tiny degree of justice because certainly the death of one man doesn't pay for the justice of the slaughter of so many people. But all of us felt a sense of, yes, that was right. We desire justice in our innermost being, which is why people get bitter and why people hold a grudge because you feel like justice is frustrated. And so people oftentimes get bitter and hold a grudge because there's this deep desire for justice in us. Now the question is why, and it's, I think it's universal. Everyone has it, even criminals have a desire for justice, although it's warped, as it is in all of us. I think it's because God has written into the code of our souls a sense of moral justice. Because we're created in his image, and God is just. He loves righteousness and justice, Psalm 33 says because he is himself just. And when there is injustice, God wants to 
wants it to be paid. He wants to deal with it. And as those created in his image, we reflect that same desire for justice. But here's the thing. Our sense of justice has been warped. That is, oftentimes it's warped by bias, by personal self-centered desire. So, and I've known people on both sides of the fence here, for example. Uh, if your family member is hit by a drunk driver, and the drunk driver's arrested, and I have a close personal friend whose son was hit by a drunk driver and killed, 15 years of age. That, is, that was his son. Well, when you're in that position, you want the full weight of justice to fall upon the drunk driver. All the time he can possibly get. It's a desire for justice. But it's largely driven by a, a, a personal relationship with the son. I've had other people who have had the drunk driver in their family. Just killed somebody. And what do you want when it's a member of your family that's offending party? Well, then you want leniency. That is to say, we want justice when it suits us, and we want mercy when it suits us. It's, it's a sense of warpedness there. And I get it on both sides of that fence. And we bring that same thing to God. I just want you, first of all, to acknowledge that every one of us desires justice. Everybody in the world wants justice, but we want our own version of it. And we bring that to the Lord, too. When we contemplate God bringing justice down on a guy like Adolf Hitler, it's like, bring it down fully, completely, send him to the deepest pit of hell. But when we start thinking about God's judgment of me, or conversations or texts like this that talk about judgment of humanity, well, then we kind of, we don't want to avoid it or not talk about it. Or maybe if you do talk about people think God's harsh or mean, this is that text which brings us to the difficult subject of the judgment of God, the justice of God. Now, I mentioned last week that most of our best stories and movies end up with a kind of a dual resolution of deliverance and justice. You know, the evil, wicked witch of the West melts because somehow she's allergic to water and Dorothy is delivered to, back to Kansas. That's, that's, we have that in our stories, deliverance and justice. And that's how the Bible story ends, too, the story of the Bible. It ends with justice and also with deliverance. Now, we looked at the first five verses of, of Revelation 14, where we saw God's people standing with the Lamb in the presence of God, rejoicing with celebration. That's the positive, victorious side of deliverance. Beginning in verse 6, we see the other resolution. Like chapter 14 talks about the end of the story of the Bible. Now we're going to see it again and again as we move forward in the book of Revelation, but this is the justice side of things. And it divides into two, just to tell you where we're going. It divides into two. Verses 6 through 13 deal with the warnings of divine justice, the warnings of divine justice, like announcements ahead of time, like it's coming. And then verses 14 through 20 deals with the execution of divine justice. So there are the warnings and execution, those two pieces. The first side deals with the warnings of divine justice. John in his vision, again, these are images and pictures that he's receiving from the Lord and then he's writing down for us to see with our eyes, kind of. He sees three angels with three messages that are interrelated. Three, if you want to talk, call them preaching angels. 
that are preaching messages, three messages, three messages of warning, those three things. The first one is a message about, and I, let me back up and say this. At the heart of each one of these three angelic announcements or proclamations is the issue of worship. Who we trust, where our loyalties lie, and ultimately who we worship. You either worship God or you worship something else. And where you end up in terms of judgment is determined by that very question, who do you worship? So the first one has to do with a call to worship the Redeemer and Creator. This is what John sees. He says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, this is what the angel says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, just a couple of details here. When it says that this angel is proclaiming to those who dwell on the earth. I've said this before, but for sake of newcomers, um, that statement, those who dwell on the earth, or earth dwellers, um, almost every time that phrase is used in Revelation, it's speaking of the unbelieving world. It's not talking about Christians, it's talking about the unbelieving world, right? A world in rebellion. So this angel is proclaiming a message to the unbelieving world. That, that's what John sees. And that message is an eternal gospel. The question is, what is that eternal gospel? Well, if you were a first century reader listening to this or reading this, then immediately when you see the word gospel, you would think the gospel of Jesus. Because almost every reference of the word gospel in the whole New Testament refers to what God has done in Jesus Christ in sending him to earth. He died our death, rose again, and was exalted to the highest place. That's the gospel of Jesus, and then we're offered forgiveness, and we're offered pardon um, through him. That's the gospel of Jesus. And let me just say, I don't think that first century readers would hear it any other way as the, this is the gospel of Christ. And I think that's what it means. So you have this picture of this angel flying in the heavens who's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the earth. And the only response to this amazing work that God has graciously done on behalf of sinful humanity is to fear him and to worship him. Because this gospel means that God is redeemer. He's created a way for us out. He's created a way of escape from the wrath of God to come. So that's this message of redemption. And the response is supposed to be one of fear and worship. And why wouldn't you? Because he includes the creative aspect of it when, it's, when he says, you know, give him glory. Worship him who made heaven and earth. So this is a call from an angelic messenger to worship God, who is the redeemer, that's the gospel piece of it, and also the creator, the only one worthy of worship. Now, the sense of the context is that the world is not going to listen, because this, this is a context of judgment. A failure to accept God's gracious offer of salvation in Jesus Christ leads to ultimate judgment. It's, it's, it's the ultimate offense is to reject the cross. And the sense is the world is not going to listen to this message. Now, we know that people do hear the message. You and I are here because at some point we heard a message and we responded. 
But the world at large, according to this vision of, of, of John, is not going to accept it. I mean, even if an angel literally flew around our globe like a plane with a megaphone proclaiming the gospel, Sean says, the sense is they're going to reject it. Now, I want you to imagine something for a moment because it kind of explores why that would anger the Lord, people rejecting his son. So work with me here. Imagine yourself standing on the shore of, of Lake Tahoe. Mostly, most of the time beautiful, although it's covered in smoke right now. Imagine yourself standing on the shore of, of Lake Tahoe, and it's a, it's a stormy day, and there's white caps, winds blowing, and you notice something out in the lake, and so you take your binoculars, and you hold them up to your eyes, and you're like, there's a guy out there, bobbing in the, in the white caps, seems to be holding onto a tiny piece of driftwood, and you know he's in trouble. So there's a person who's about to perish, and you're standing on the shore, you have no boat, no cell phone, it died, can't call for help, and you're faced with a dilemma. And just imagine you're a really, really, really good swimmer. You're either going to let him drown, or you're going to, at risk of your own life, you're going to swim out there amongst the white caps, and you're going to tow him to safety. And let's just say, for sake of argument, that you decide you're going to jump into that cold Tahoe water, and you're going to swim. And you swim. And you swim. And you swim. You finally get there, you're exhausted, tired, but you still have enough energy to get back. And you look the man in the face who's bobbing in the waves, and you say, let me tow you back. And he looks at you with kind of a defiant sneer and says, nah, I got this. I got this, I don't need your help. And then proceeds to drown right in front of you after you swam all the way out there. How at that moment would you imagine you would feel? I'd be deeply upset. <laughs> I dare say I'd be furious. I'd be thinking in my head, what a moron. You thought you could do it on your own, didn't need my help, and you're drowned. Listen, God didn't swim out into a stormy lake to save us. God descended into the cesspool of human corruption, wore our weakness, experienced our suffering in full, and then was publicly humiliated, stripped, bare, and crucified on a cross for all to see. Life. And hum humanity looks at God with kind of a defiant sneer and says, nah, we got this. We don't need your help. That is one of the most deeply offending things you could possibly do to the Lord is reject the cross. God offers absolutely everything the life of his own son to save you. And you say, nah, we got this. We don't need your help. The greatness of salvation in Christ is counterbalanced by the greatness of judgment for refusing to embrace him, the son of God. So that's the, the first message. Worship God as redeemer and creator. And of course, the sense is that the world will not. The second message, the second angel, a, a different but related message. 
Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That is the essence of the message is the the idolatrous system of this world is going to crumble, it's going to fall. Now when this was written, when John penned this in the, I don't know, 90s AD, you know, the city of Babylon was in ruins, it was rubble, like it, it really didn't exist. So John's not talking about like a, 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 a restored, rebuilt Babylon. His, Babylon became a symbol for the people of God, an enemy of God's people, and the mother of false religion. That is to say, the mother of idolatry, the worship of other gods, anything but God. This is almost, well, a near quote of Isaiah chapter 21, verse 9. And back then, Babylon was a city, still existed. It said, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods has, he has shattered to the ground. The carved images of her gods. Pull people away from the worship of the true God, to worship other things. Now here in the 21st century, we look at this and go, well, we don't have paganism anymore. We don't actually march to temples and bow down and offer fruit to little, you know, figurines. True, although it does exist in some parts of the world. We might think, well, we're too sophisticated and too secular for that these days. We don't have an idolatry. This, this is something that's old, ancient. But you and I both know that as long as humans exist, there is worship. We worship something. It's what you, gives you ultimate meaning. It's what you fear the most. It's what you desire the most. We're surrounded by a world that worships money, wealth, power. You don't think so? Watch what happens when money is taken away and people take their own lives. You're worshiping money. The security money brings, you could worship a sexual identity, sexual pleasure, technology, the environment, Worship yourself. There's, there's idolatry all around us. It's what we depend on the most, what we trust in the most, it, which gives us ultimate meaning. And at some point, we're going to realize that everything people trust in is going to crumble to the ground. Everything we, th- we think is so secure and so stable, so solid, is going to crash like a, like a house of cards. I was thinking about this text and meditating on it, and, I, and it took me to the news story that I'm sure most of us were horrified by of Surfside, Florida. I just, I just, it baffles me that modern engineering and in a first world like the United States that that could happen. You know, a, a, a high-rise of condominiums could instantly collapse. I watched that video, and I'm sure many of you did too, and I imagined myself in that. You know, it's a fear of mine, (laughs) falling. You would have been third, fourth, fifth floor, you pick. It would have seemed solid. You could have stomped your feet on the ground and it wouldn't have moved because it's, you know, steel reinforced concrete. Go into your house, sleep, go out the next day, and, and everything just seems normal and consistent. Meanwhile, down in the foundation, things are falling apart. And, yeah, man, then this split second to feel your feet go out from under you, just be horrifying. 
Everything feels so solid right now. Maybe your finances, it just feels so solid. Maybe our world feels so solid to you, but the fact of the matter is at some point, it's all going to implode. Everything mankind entrusts in, it's going to implode. And there's only one thing that lasts forever. There's only one rock that does not move, and that's the Lord. It's all going to crumble to the ground. The reason to worship God and God only, it's all going to fall apart. So that was the second message, is this whole idolatrous system of the world that is created is going to tumble to the ground. And the third message is related but different. Here we deal with the worship of human power and sovereignty. And people who worship human power and human sovereignty will reap eternal destruction. And these are some of the more, they're not difficult to understand, they're just difficult to believe. If anyone worships the beast, and we've talked about the beast in previous occasions, this is not simply some end time power, this is something that has emerged through human history of human powers that solicit and require absolute allegiance and loyalty to the point of worship. In the first century, it would have been Rome and the emperors that required worship, otherwise you suffer or die as a Christian. It's worship. The beast is human power. It's a symbol for human power. And the mark of the beast, as we've said, is figurative. In the same way that the mark is placed on God's people, the seal is figurative. It's a matter of ultimate loyalty. No one's gonna get the mark by accident. It's gonna be a volitional choice to worship something other than the Lord. So he continues on to say, listen, if you're gonna worship something that's not God, human power, human authority, this is what's gonna happen. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, that is Jesus, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. You're gonna worship the powers of the world? Then you're going to receive, how, do, how else do I say it, but what it says right here? God's wrath. Again, not a topic people want to talk about. But if we're going to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, we have to take this into consideration. It's for our good. And there's, again, this is symbolic imagery. But just because it's symbolic does not mean we shouldn't take it seriously. Because the realities to which it points are serious. The wrath of God is real. Whether or not sulfur and fire is the ultimate means by which God punishes people is a matter of interpretation. There's different metaphors that are used for it, but the fact is it points to a reality of wrath. And notice, just a couple things, just, it's there, dwell on it for a second. It's poured full strength, undiluted, like undiluted by mercy, full strength. That's sobering. It uses the word torment. And then the smoke goes up forever and ever. That means it's, or suggests it's eternal. Full strength, suffering, eternal. <laughs> That's hard to read if you think about it. 
that there is a, a wrath that gives full strength. It is causes suffering and it never ends. You know, <laughs> people suffer different things, right? You know, you ladies who've had kids, apparently it's really painful. <laughs> I guess people who pass stones, they say that's really painful too. I haven't had to do that either. Just a, I'm a wimp when it comes to suffering like that. About the worst thing I suffer is um, severe migraine headaches, uh, ocular migraines. I see spots and stuff, and I got one in between services one day, and I preached the first service, and Adam jumped in and preached the second service. And the thing is, I have about an hour. If I don't have medication, I have about an hour where I need to be in a dark room, in my bed, no sound, because I know for four hours I'm going to have like what feels like a nail drilled into my head. And it hurts so badly that I can't sleep. So I'm consciously aware of this headache. And then get up and I have to vomit, go back to bed. And it's one of those things where I can't get rid of the pain, but I find myself like finding like a fetal position, laying my head a certain way where, oh, it doesn't hurt as bad. And then you stay there and you wait. And those four hours are long. I can't imagine forever. I just can't. But God's calling us to imagine. Not to scare us, but to reinforce something very important. And that is, there's only one worth worshiping, and that is the Lord who gave everything to have us. And to remind us that endurance of faith is very important. That's why he includes this little call to our endurance. It's like, if this is true, then it's serious. If this is true, then what it means is we have to approach the Christian life with the utmost seriousness. We can't play at the Christian life like a, like a gym membership, you know, where it's like you go to Crunch Fitness at once a month. It's like, oh, this is cool. You can take it or leave it. No, this is about daily life of I want to live a life of trust and loyalty and worship to God and God only. Hence the call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is not something we want to take lightly. I think that's what it's here for. And if you read verse 13, which I didn't put on the board behind me or on the screens behind me, um, if we happen to die because of our faithfulness, to Christ, that is, we're not going to bow the knee to another God, then he says you're blessed because we receive rest. Unlike those in this passage who have no rest, there is rest even in death for us. So here you have these warnings, gracious warnings, God, you know, delivering these warnings. And, and the primary intent is for the church to learn from these warnings. This book was written to the church, not to the world to just remind us of the seriousness of it. Verse, I hope I'm not scaring people. I just gotta tell you, I am heavy. I have a heavy heart when I teach these passages. Um, in part because I have family members who do not believe. And I know you do too. But let me just tell you, I am a frail human being, but I know my job as a pastor is to faithfully preach the text no matter how difficult it is. And if I don't, then guess what? I'm going to be judged for it. So the last part, 
The second half of this is the execution of judgment. And I'm not going to spend as much time on this because, um, like I said, this is some of the most vivid and graphic. It's symbol, but still, it's graphic. So John sees... In the second part of this vision, he says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, and a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, these phrases, white cloud, like seated on a cloud, son of man, and a crown on his head. I mean, Jesus ascended in a cloud, and he says, I'm coming back in a cloud. His, a, a son of man is a reference that he uses for himself, and it's allusion to Daniel 7, 13, and 14 that speaks of the Messiah, and then this crown on his head. I think this is a picture of the second coming of Jesus, only this, he has a sickle in his hand by which you would harvest, like grain or grapes. And John envisions just that, like there's this harvest coming. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth, earth is fully ripe. You know, you don't, we're not farmers, most of us aren't, but most of us have a little tomato garden or something, and we don't harvest until they're, tomatoes until they're ripe and red, right? And harvest them when you're green, unless you're, you like sour tomatoes. Anyway, you get the point. The fact of the matter is, is this tells us there's a time and place when humanity is going to be ripe for judgment. And I think of it like this. The seeds of human sin that were sown in Genesis 3 at the first rebellion are going to mature, they are going to fruit, and they will culminate in the final and global rebellion. And when the fruit is ripe, judgment falls. The sickle is taken to earth. And the last part here, this is the part that's, again, um, and one of the, call it a benefit, but one of the powers of speaking in images like this is they, they stick in your head, right? Speaking images versus propositions. These, are, these images, verse 19 and 20, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Now, we live in wine country, and most of us have probably seen some of the old wine presses where you throw the grapes and people would step on them and the juice would go out the sides, collected. That's a picture. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is a picture of carnage. Symbol, like God's not going to literally throw bodies into a wine press and then stomp on them. That's not the point. The fact is, is this wine press imagery is just to show you the seriousness of the wrath of God when it falls, and blood flows, and it flows deep, and it flows long. 1,600 stadia, if you look in your notes of your Bible, it says it's about 184 miles. That's a river of blood that flows from here beyond Reno. There you go. Harvest day is going to come. And do we believe it? Are we living 
with a sense of sobriety and vigilance and watchfulness? Are we taking the Christian life seriously? I think that's kind of what this is intended to do, is create a sense of seriousness and urgency to our Christian walk. But let me end on a word of hope. Because there's a phrase in here that I think is significant in verse 20. Okay, look, right here. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Outside the city. Didn't have to say that, outside the city, except there's another time in history when God's wrath has fallen outside the city. We're told in Hebrews chapter 13 that Jesus was taken outside the camp, outside the city, and he was put to death. That is, I think it's an association with the crucifixion of Jesus. It would call to mind the crucifixion of Jesus. Let's think about this for just a moment. What Jesus did on the cross, because he loved us. We didn't deserve it, but because he chose to love us. Jesus willingly put himself in the wine press and was crushed. He willingly put himself in the wine press and was crushed by the full weight of the wrath of God so that we could go free and be forgiven and justice satisfied. That's the cross. We don't understand the cross if we don't understand wrath. You don't understand. We just don't get it. And the magnitude of God's love to send his son there, like it was Jesus' own choice of love to go and put himself in the wine press and be crushed with the full weight, the unmixed anger of the Lord. And it was the Father, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son out of love for us that the Father sends his son to be crushed in the wine press. That's a picture of the gospel and it's a picture of the love of God that he would do such a thing so we could be delivered forever. And not just delivered from wrath, but fully and completely embraced and accepted into his eternal family forever and ever. That's the gospel. So if you don't know the Lord, I think the response, natural response is, what are you gonna believe? Who are you gonna worship? Who are you gonna follow? I want to follow a God who gave his life for me and put himself in the wine press on my behalf. Do you? For the rest of us who do believe, this was written so that we would endure in faith and we would watch and keep watch over our souls and over each other so that we do not worship other things. We do not bow the knee to other gods, but rather endure in faith trust and grow in our allegiance to the Lord, the only one worthy of worship. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you again, calling you gracious Father, because you are gracious. And I know, Lord, that you have designed words that are difficult like this for our good, for us to really seriously consider things. And I I just ask that that would be done today, that we would give these words careful thought and reflection and that it would, they would accomplish your intended purpose, humbling us, giving us a spirit of gratitude that you would do such a thing to deliver us from this, and that we would, by faith, um, serve you and follow you all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.